Um, We have two readings today. The first is going to be from Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, 25 to 31, and then we're going to read from Colossians. So starting in Isaiah, chapter 40, at verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And the second reading from Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 15 and going through to verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All these were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in the faith, established and firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Now, some of you here have emigrated to Australia and and for some of you, it wasn't all that long ago. Um... For some of you, it was actually at the start of COVID, and for a couple of you, even since then. And changing countries and, and cultures like that is such a huge thing. And I, and I can only imagine during COVID what it must have been like. It must have made it all the more difficult to do it. Now, I myself have um, never emigrated anywhere unless you count moving to SA from New South Wales. But I I imagine as you emigrate, as you step off the plane and and join a new country, join a new culture, there must be a whole heap of questions that are going through your mind. 
You must be wondering what are some of the most important things for me to learn about living here. And while you're trying to figure out the basics, like where to live, what to drive, how to find work, I imagine that there must also be bigger questions going through your mind as well. Like what are going to be the the differences in how I see the world compared to how these people see the world? That's not an easy answer, uh, question to answer, partly because there's, there's not one Australian way to see the world, is there? And partly because even if someone explains to us a, a different way of seeing the world, it's extremely, extremely hard to really take that in and understand it on a deep level. Last week, we started looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians and he told them in, in verse 13 that they have emigrated and so has he, and so has all, have all followers of Jesus. He writes that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's the country that we've come from. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We've emigrated into the son's kingdom. Now, just like when some of you stepped off the plane, you, you found people who could help you understand your new country. You know, people who said things like, when the locals hand you a piece of toast with a centimetre of black stuff on it. Just take a nibble, not a bite, laugh politely, that was a funny joke, and ask if there's a non-toxic way to eat Vegemite. But more seriously, hopefully you found people who actually have helped you make sense of the way a lot of Australians think and do things. Well, like that, Paul is writing to these people to help them understand this kingdom that they've become a part of. The difference is that Paul's not just giving helpful tips. He has a God-given role as an apostle to help people understand their place in God's kingdom. He's never even um, met most of these people before that he's writing to. But still, he's extremely passionate about helping them understand their place in this kingdom of the Son. Now, when someone comes to Australia, they might ask, what makes this place tick? What's the essence of the way that these people see the world? What's at the heart of, of, of what this country is on about? And I, I honestly don't know if there's a clear and kind of united answer to these questions. But the good news for us is that Paul tells us that it's very different when we come to the kingdom of God's Son. At this point in the letter, he tells them what is the most basic, most crucial thing for them to see, whether they're just stepping off the plane or whether they're marking their 50th anniversary as citizens. There's really only one thing they need to know in this kingdom. And the thing they need to know is who is this son? Who is this son whose kingdom they've been brought into? If they get that right, then everything else will just fall into place. And the first thing they need to know, and we need to know about this son, is that the son is supreme over all creation. The son is supreme over all creation. Look at verse 15, where we start to see this. Paul writes, The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All humans are created in the image of God, even though we've, we've distorted that image. But Jesus is not created 
in the image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You know, looking at you and me, it doesn't really reveal much about God. But Jesus is in the image of God in a way that reveals the invisible God to us. And what goes hand in hand with the Son being the image of God is being firstborn over all creation. But what does that mean, firstborn over all creation? Firstborn sounds like Paul saying, uh, talking about him being the oldest child, you know, born first in the family. Hands up if, if that's you, if, if you're the, um, the oldest child in your family. Okay, can you just block your ears for a second? Um. When most of us think of, of our oldest brother or sister, what do we usually think of? Well, we usually think of someone who thought they could throw their weight around for no good reason. Usually because they literally weighed more than the rest of us. They were sort of self-important, sometimes self-obsessed, and, and often the source of a lot of drama, unnecessary drama in a family. Okay, you can start listening again now. <clears throat> but when Paul says firstborn, he's got so much more in mind than what comes to our minds. In Exodus 4.22 in the Old Testament, God says to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that Israel is his firstborn son. There were nations before Israel, it wasn't the first, but God chose Israel to have a special relationship with him, to be raised up for a special purpose. Firstborn in the Bible is about being first in significance, and it's not always about literally being firstborn. In Psalm 89, King David is described as God's firstborn, even though where was he born in his family? Last of many boys. He's the firstborn because God gave him the legitimate position of ruling over his people for the benefit of his people. When Paul's saying that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's saying he rules over all creation. He is supreme over all creation. And this is exactly what he goes on to tell us in the next verse, verse 16. He says he's firstborn for in him all things were created. And in case we're wondering what he means by that, he tells us things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. See, the Son made all things that we're aware of and all things that we're not aware of. And Paul is, is being careful here to make sure that we've heard him say that all things really means all things. And in case we're still not sure, Paul summarizes all things have been created through him and for him. And so Paul says here, in him, through him, for him, all things made in him, made through him, made for him. I was in a restaurant just the other day and I heard this song playing that I'd never heard before. It was kind of angsty and a little bit silly. And eventually, eventually I, f I figured out that he was singing, Jesus Stole My Girlfriend. Have you ever heard that song before? I, I'd never come across it. Now, I found it amusing to start with, but then kind of irritating. It was irritating having this song playing while I was trying to enjoy lunch. And it was, I think it was irritating in the sense that it, it was obvious in this, this song that there was a head-on clash between two ways 
of seeing the world and my way of seeing the world was being lamented there was a a thinly veiled bitterness in the song and there's a line actually in the song where he sings but I don't see the world like you do girl one way of seeing the world sees sees that it's a stupid thing that God could have a greater claim on his girlfriend than he does. The other way of seeing the world is that there is no claim too great for Jesus to make over anything at all in all this world. How could Jesus ever steal what was made in him, through him, for him? Do you see what kind of kingdom you've immigrated to? It's a kingdom where we echo our king's claim, that he has a claim over everyone and everything because he is supreme over all creation. This really is is quite a, a radical view of the world, isn't it? It's a hated view of the world. But it's the only right view of the world. The, the significance of the sun has got nothing to do with whether we recognize his significance or not. He's supremely significant to every single person, every single thing in creation, simply by who he is. My um, brother-in-law is a Norwegian, and so my sister lived in Norway for a bit. And um, Kathy and I went and visited her once. And when we were there, my brother-in-law and my sister took us on a bit of a tour of of Oslo, uh, including a walk around an old castle, I've got a picture just of the outside of it here. And in the, in the grounds outside of this castle, there was a pear tree that had pears on it. And if you know me, you know I kind of, I'm semi-obsessed with fruit trees for some reason. I love fruit trees. And so I climbed up this pear tree and, and I picked a couple of pears. And after a while, I could tell that it was really irritating my brother-in-law. And so eventually he says to me, do you mind not picking the king's pears? <laughs> I hadn't really thought about the king of Norway. I hadn't really considered what he'd think of, of me stealing his fruit. It's called scrumping, by the way, when you steal fruit. In my mind, I was just enjoying a tree in a public park. In my mind, the king of Norway was irrelevant and insignificant. But in my brother-in-law's mind, he saw things a little bit differently. In his mind, I was being an Australian bogan, disrespecting their king. And the truth is, he had a small point. (laughs) But while the, the king of Norway has some significance, especially when you're in his castle, in his pear tree, Jesus has all significance everywhere at all times. People might walk through life not acknowledging the significance of this son, thinking he's irrelevant, finding it irritating when people take him too seriously. But that doesn't at all change the reality that his significance is supreme. That every piece of fruit I ever hold in my hand was made in him, through him, for him. Every person I ever love made in him, through him, for him. Every strength, skill, 
beauty or accomplishment. I possess all things made in him, through him, for him. Have you immigrated to his kingdom? Is this how you see his world? Is this how you see your life? Because clarity on who the Son is, is the one basic thing, the most important thing that we need in his kingdom. So that's the first thing we see about this Son. He is supreme over all creation. But there's more. The next thing we see is that the Son is supreme over the reconciliation of creation. Look at verse 18. Paul goes on and he writes, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, when you think of the church, what do you think of? Do you think of the the 2.3 billion people around the world? Do you think of history shaped by the church? Do you think of the buildings, the cathedrals, all the hospitals, the universities, the schools started, the forgotten underpinning of our civilization, our legal system, our ethics, our values? Now, we might think of these things, but what about the, the people receiving this letter then and there when they read, he is the head of the body, the church, literally the gathering? To them, the first thing that would have come to mind when they heard church would have been that, that small group of people gathered there in that lounge room in Colossae. They'd be thinking, he is the head of us sitting in this lounge room. And it's a strange gathering because they're mostly non-Jews who've, who've joined this new movement. They've thrown their lot in with this Jewish king who died the most demeaning death possible at the hands of the Roman kingdom. He's a weak-sounding king of a weak-sounding movement. And on the surface, it must have been hard for their neighbours to understand why, why would they immigrate to this kingdom? The son being supreme over all creation is one thing, but being the head of the church doesn't seem so impressive. But that's not the way God sees it. Verse 18 goes on, He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Here we see the the firstborn again, but this time he's both first in time, he's the beginning, and he's first in importance from a really strange group of people. He's first, number one in time and importance, from among those who have died but will not stay dead. And we see what this means about who he is. It's so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The one who is supreme over all his creation is also supreme in the reconciliation of his creation. Now, when you look at the cross, what do you see? What God sees is the supremacy of the Son in everything. It's kind of hard to get your mind around. That's what he sees. For many Jewish people today, that they can't accept this. For many Muslims, it's blasphemous to even think of God this way. For many agnostics and atheists, it just sounds completely unappealing, unintelligent. For many Romans at the time, it was a joke. They've dug up graffiti where a boy is being mocked 
for follow, following a crucified God. There's a picture of, of Jesus with a, a donkey's head on a cross. And there's a boy there looking to the cross. And the caption reads, Alexamenos worships his God. But God doesn't sit uncomfortably with the cross at all. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all the fullness of the divinity of God is fully pleased to dwell in Jesus bodily. And God is fully pleased to reconcile all things to Jesus in this way. And again, in case we're wondering what all things means, Paul tells us, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things means all things. All things belong to him. And the Son brings back under his rule all things and he does it by making peace through his blood shed on the cross god doesn't feel embarrassed by the cross or weakened by it or compromised by it he doesn't feel obliged or backed into a corner god sees the cross as the way that this world has a future He sees it as the way that the king of this world brings his creation back into peace under his rightful rule. The cross is an incredibly powerful and moving event when you see it right. I remember going to watch The Passion when it came out with a friend from uni, a friend who was a Hindu. And the only impact that the movie had on him was that he found it too gruesome. Now, on the one hand, he was right. The movie was, it was far too gruesome, if you remember it. It was horrible. But on the other hand, I remember just being astounded that there was no other impact on him whatsoever. That the supreme divine son would willingly embrace what he went through So that he could rule creation not only with judgment, which would have been the case, but with reconciliation. And my friend was completely unmoved. For those of us who've immigrated to the Son's kingdom, we've come to see that the Son is supreme in creation and he is supreme in its reconciliation back to him too. And Paul is telling that that little gathering there in Colossae, as weak as as it, it might appear to some, that it's the place where reconciliation, where that reconciliation with the Son is experienced. Can you believe that? That gathering is the place where that reconciliation is being experienced. Where the Son is the head And the body is the church. And there's no place where reconciliation will be experienced outside of it. Now, there might be a a whole lot more churches today, but this is still true. This will always be true. The sphere in which we experience reconciliation is as we come to the kingdom of the Son, with Him as our head, 
and with us as his gathered people, his body. Have you noticed these days that there's quite a huge tendency to view the world through a a human philosophy that says the individual is at the centre of reality? Have you felt this in our culture? Its roots actually, you know, they go a long way back. They go back to Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. That's a very individualistically centred view of the universe. They probably go back even further than that. The centre of reality is me. And sadly, we see as a result of this that people hold church so lightly. Not at all like Jesus. I believe in God. Therefore, I have all I need. There's no body in that kind of thinking. You know, Christ dies as an individual alone, first and supreme. But he does it in order to gather together a people reconciled to him. Now, I know here, right, I'm preaching to the converted. We're the, we're the people who see the value of gathering. That's why we're here. But can you see how sad it is in our world to see more and more people not able to see what the sun is doing, gathering a people? More and more people too hurt by the church or too busy or just too deceived by an individualistic philosophy that they risk slowly cutting themselves off and their children off from the only sphere in which Christ brings reconciliation to the world. If we want no connection with Christ's body, it, it's hard to see how we really want a connection with its head. I've got siblings and friends like this, and, and watching them drift over the years, not continuing, it's heartbreaking. And this really brings us to our last point. The sun is supreme over creation. The sun is supreme over creation's reconciliation. And so finally, we need to see the sun is our only hope to be reconciled to God. Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, once you see who the sun is. We can have no existence out of him, whether that's to be created or whether that's to be reconciled to God. And if we don't submit to his rule, we have no future without him, only judgment. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, once you are alienated from God, he goes from talking about who this son is to talking about how they relate to this son. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, do you see who we once were? He goes on to tell us who we now are and who will one day be. Clarity on, on, on these things is critical. Once we were alienated from God and were enemies. Now at the moment, as we heard Mark say before, we're asking people what would make God worth believing in? And what have you found as you've asked people? It's a bit like waking people from sleep. I don't know if you've found that. It's like God's not a high priority and believing, him isn't, believing in him just isn't something that's on the front of their minds. Once you sort of wake people up a bit and they, they start thinking about it, I reckon they feel pretty comfortable to talk about it. And part of the reason for that is because the question is actually framed in a fairly human-centred way when you think about it. Why should I believe in God? Or, or what would make 
my belief in him worth my while that's the way it's kind of framed and so as we talk to people as we ask this question maybe you'll think the problem is not so much people's hostility towards god it's more their indifference do you ever feel like that people aren't hostile towards god they're just indifferent that that's the problem but we should be clear about this indifference to god is hostility to god when Mike Rader was here, who, who spoke a couple of weeks ago, uh, he, he spoke at Trinity Youth as well, and, and he told a story about Jeffrey Bingham, who I know some of you knew. He was a minister in Adelaide. Once he was talking to a, a, a pregnant lady who didn't think she was God's enemy. She was just fairly indifferent, and she didn't feel like God would be too worried about that. And seeing she was pregnant, he asked her how she'd feel if, if the child, when she was born never called her mum, not once, never looked her in the eye or smiled or or laughed. You know, she kept her room tidy, she she did her homework, she did great at school, but she never said thank you, never said I love you, never even spoke to her mum or acknowledged her existence. And he said to this lady, what would you call a child like that? And the lady said, a monster. And then he asked her, when was the last time you said to God, I love you? Thank you. And she couldn't remember. That's alienation, isn't it? That's hostility of of probably the worst kind. I mean, that's a parent's worst nightmare and that's us that's who we are without the son but now with the son verse 22 god has reconciled you by christ's physical body through death this is the gospel this is the gospel that's bearing fruit in the entire world in the lives of the Colossians, in our lives here. This is how we stand in this kingdom we've emigrated to. The Son, by His death on the cross, brings forgiveness, brings reconciliation, and He rises to life to completely guarantee our our future, who we will be, where He will present you wholly in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation he's going to do all that he's supreme in that we're not going to present ourselves free from accusation how could we we have absolutely no role in this whatsoever no role except for this verse 23 if you continue in your faith established and firmed and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel the one role that we have is to see with clarity who the son is to see with clarity who we are without him and who we are with him and so the one role we have is to hold the line continue in our faith continue firm and established 
continue unmoving from the hope held out in the gospel. I've heard people say that being a parent of teenagers is kind of like holding a rope where they're thrashing around on the other end. It's a great image, don't you reckon? And you've got one job as a parent. It's just to hold that rope and not get pulled off balance. You know, you've got to resist the challenge to kind of whip the rope back. You've got to resist the challenge of just getting pulled in whatever direction they want to take you. And you've got to resist the, the challenge just to let go and be done with them. Now, if you've ever known a teenager, you'll know that all of those options are actually quite tempting in their own ways. But a parent's job is, is to hold the line, keep calm, keep faithful, keep kind, keep available and carry on. Now I think that picture is enormously helpful for parents. And I think it's similar to the picture that Paul is painting for us immigrants in God's kingdom. Is it easy to continue in faith, unmoved? If you're finding it easy, then I think you're probably the most at risk. When you're playing tug-of-war, what's the best way to pull the other team over? When they're not expecting it, when you catch them off guard. Now, why does Paul write this to the Colossians? Why does he say it again in chapter 2, verse 5? It's because continuing, being established and firm, being immovable, it's not easy. It's not something that, that we should take for granted. We need to hold on to the hope held out in the gospel. And it's like there are all sorts of ropes attached to us that are trying to pull us away from Jesus. In this letter, Paul talks about some of the things that that would do that, that would pull us away from the sun. A big one that we'll come across is alternative philosophies, alternative ways of seeing the world where we turn a blind eye to Jesus' claim over all things. And a huge version of this in our own day is atheistic naturalism. Atheistic naturalism, which claims to be synonymous with science itself, even though in actual fact it's just a philosophy. It's a faith belief that all there is is physical matter and nothing else. It's not compelling because it's got merit to it. It's compelling because a lot of people have got a lot of blind faith in it and it's hard to go against the flow. And some of them thrash pretty wildly on the other end of that rope sometimes, telling us that religion is stupid or outdated or evil. That's one kind of rope. But there are religious ones too that we're going to see in this letter. Religious rules, religious rituals, spiritual experiences. Now, some of these ropes you know, we can kind of address in our life and, and just throw them off. It's not like throwing off a teenager. You're allowed to throw off some of these robes. But actually on the end of some of them are people that we can't just, wouldn't be right for us just to throw off. A spouse, family, workmates. Our calling is to continue in faith, firm and established no matter what we face. And to do that, it means we need to keep clarity on who the Son is. Clarity on who we once were without Him. And clarity on who we are now if we continue in Him. What's going to help you continue? What's going to 
help you get established and firm? What's going to help you be unmoved? These are the things to keep reflecting on as we keep moving through Colossians. Let me pray for us. Father, really, we can just stand in wonder and awe at the Son. That in Him is all your fullness. Lord, even though we can see the Son for who He is, His breadth and His depth just go on and on. Lord, help us to see that in Jesus we see our Creator, our Sustainer. In Jesus we see our Saviour, the one who has reconciled us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the clarity we need so that we can continue with him, in him, for him. We pray, Lord, this wouldn't just be something that sits in our head, but it's something that we feel in our heart and that we live out in our lives that overflows into our family, into how we work, into how we volunteer in in the community, into every aspect of who we are. Lord, Help us to continue unmoved when we're being shaken. Help us to keep looking to Jesus, to keep standing on him and him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.